Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. While much of the nation's real estate market withered under the weight of the 2008 recession, homeowners and homebuyers in central Pennsylvania managed to emerge better than most other regions. Ten years later, the region's residential real estate industry is quite healthy. According to data from real estate website Trulia, both home prices and sales volume are up at a healthy rate this quarter. Joining us to paint a picture of the state of residential real estate in the region are Jennifer King, president of the Lancaster County Association of Realtors, and she. He's a REMAX agent. Ms. King, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. Also joining us, Bob Fox, the incoming vice president of uh, the Greater Harrisburg Association of Realtors. Mr. Fox, thank you for being with us today. Nice to be here, Scott. And Mark McNaughton is president of McNaughton uh, Builders and Government Affairs Liaison for the Pennsylvania Builders Association. Uh, Representative McNaughton, former state representative, thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And if you have a question or a comment about housing, about uh, uh, the sales of houses, about buying a house, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, Jennifer King, I'm going to start with you. Understand that Lancaster County is the number one market in the country right now. What does that mean? That is a fantastic time to be in Lancaster County real estate. So, yeah, we're looking for homes to sell, still dealing with a short of a gym inventory. Um, but, yeah, sales are just gone crazy, and it's been a great time for people. Well, how did that happen? Well, I think, you know, as the market has changed, the economy has um, gained a little more confidence. People are stable with their jobs. Um, you know, it's it's just gone haywire. It's, been, it's just been fantastic. So, Bob Fox, here in central Pennsylvania, as I mentioned, uh, that, you know, we, we did better. We did much better than most other areas of the country because our economy, it, it's, it's pretty consistent. How about uh, home sales and buying here in, uh, in the Harrisburg region? I would say our market mirrors very closely the Lancaster market. Yes, they're a little more robust than we are, but uh, we're doing quite well. Just to give you an example of just some differences going back uh, four years, if you look at our inventory back in 2012, we had 5,129 houses available for sale. Our inventory today is 2021. So that gives you an idea how much things have changed. That's quite a bit. Now, when you when you, those numbers, give us some context with that. Uh, does that mean that, you know, I, one of the things I do understand is that uh, you can see a robust housing market. You can tell one of the ways you can tell is that there are not a lot of for sale signs out front. So, give us some context of why the inventory is down. Well, I think we had a delay of people not buying after the. Um, recession, uh, when the financial markets imploded, uh, there were, I mean, a lot of our buying market should be right now millennials because of how big of an age group, frankly, they're going to be bigger than us baby boomers. I think they already are, yeah. And uh, so a lot of them have not been buying over the last couple of years, and I think the confidence level is there where they're starting to buy, and they're in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. and, Go ahead. And I was going to say, the interest rate and the confidence go hand in hand with that comment. What are interest rates right now? You're hovering on a 30-year fixed rate mortgage around 4%. Mm -hmm. And give us an idea of, say it went up to uh, where it was at 3.75 or 3.5. Uh, what's that mean in a, uh, say, a $100,000? Okay, $200,000 house. 100000 is not uh, <laughs> not a whole lot of them around anymore. Well, at 200000 if you were at roughly around a 4% interest rate, you're probably looking at your principal and interest payment being about nine hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to have a little more of that to pay because you're going to have to pay some taxes, and you're going to be paying insurance. 
But those are pretty low numbers. Uh, as uh, my colleague Mark would remember with me, I remember doing some mortgage loans at 18% in 1981. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I, that still amazes me. <laughs> that still amazes me that uh, interest rates were that high. Now, I was too young at that time to be buying a house, but uh, that how people could afford that. So, Mark McNaughton, before we, you're shaking your head, you're not only, you know, unfortunately, we remember those days. Uh, so, what about home building? Home building is... Uh, Right now, it's very good for the marketplace. Um, you know, everybody thinks that the interest rates, are, if it creeps up a quarter of a point from 3.75 to 4%, like that's a huge jump. They don't realize that we are at historic lows for interest rates. On average, interest rates should be 6, 6.5%, 7%. And we remember when they were 18%. Bob, thanks for a lot for dating my age here. <laughs> really appreciated that comment. You're welcome. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's historic lows. For the building industry itself, it's hard for us to keep inventory in place couple of things that happened you know with the great recession banks got leery about lending money f to do uh, land development and lots are very scarce to come by and there are certain marketplaces where lots are really unavailable and it takes a very long time now working through the government process three to five years before a site will be ready for selling lots or single-family homes that time frame the money borrowed the interest paid you're not going to find a two hundred thousand dollar house you know, the marketplace has shifted that much. Affordable housing in central Pennsylvania is becoming tougher and tougher to find. And it's because of the governmental regulations and what's going on. I mean, price increases that we've seen in the last year and a half, two years, because of lumber shortages, for example. Labor shortages. Skilled labor is very difficult to come by, especially in those places like Lancaster County, number one housing market in the country. What was good about central Pennsylvania is we don't have the highs and the lows in right, the marketplace. Right. That's why central Pennsylvania does very well. We're very conservative in that respect. So mm -hmm. we didn't have a lot of standing inventory out there when the recession hit. That was a good thing. You know, we don't have those big fluctuations in market swings. I want to talk about some of the things that you just mentioned there, like the labor force and uh, the lumber prices and that kind of thing. But since you just mentioned lots, why are lots hard to come by? Well, by the time you purchase a piece of property, for example, and you go through the governmental process, which has now even gotten more stringent because of the Chesapeake Bay uh, requirements for erosion sedimentation control, for example, and on-lot stormwater control and making sure there's no runoff and everything's cleaned and keep protecting of the streams and, and protecting of the bay, which is everybody's thrust and, and it's the right thing to do. Uh, it just makes it that much more difficult to get through the approval process because everybody, the engineering that's required, the permitting that's required, and then of course you have to finance that. Most of the big lending institutions don't do financing anymore for land development. They've, that was one of those that got stung quite a bit uh, during the recession, so they've pulled out of those markets. So the ones you need to do the financing are really the local institutions. Uh, sadly, Dodd-Frank, the bill by the federal government, has done away with a lot of local lending institutions. It forced mergers in the banking industry where they shouldn't have had them before because of their overregulation of the banking industry. So there was kind of a double whammy when it came to getting approvals and then to get loans and then to do the improvements. It's a it's a five-year process. What's the average size of a lot today? Uh, anywhere from a quarter of an acre to a half an acre. Um, of course, you know, that's going to affect price. Right. So, you know, if uh, m most municipalities where there's a lot of pressure, they could tend to make the lot size larger. Well, when you make the lot size larger, you're increasing the cost because it's based on per foot. What's a lot uh, go for in Lancaster County, for example? Oh, you're looking probably around 150000 for a quarter acre, half acre lot. Wow. Yeah. I, that was much higher than I expected. <laughs> yeah. So I understand why the prices have gone up somewhat. Yeah. So you know, take me back, though, to, to 2008, 2007. We know that, uh, as Bob referred to it, the economy uh, imploding, that a lot of it had to do with real estate and some of the loans that were being made and uh, people who couldn't afford their mortgages. I imagine that, and something th th that you mentioned, uh, Jennifer, was that uh, you know people having confidence, that it took a long time for people to get that confidence back. Take me back to 2008 and what changes you have seen where things started to, to turn around. Well, I think, you know, 
there were a lot of people who were not certain what's going to happen. The elections always factor into people's confidence. Once things settle again, they get more confident. We've seen both people spending more money remodeling their homes and investing into their homes, upgrading. Um, some of the challenge now, you know, our our average sales price is up to the highest it's ever been in Lancaster County. At what two, is that? 222000 okay. almost 223000 And uh, this summer we've seen the highest record sales ever in Lancaster County, which is absolutely phenomenal when you figure out that we've got the most limited inventory we've ever seen <laughs> mm-hmm. and the homes are still selling quickly. So um, three quarters of the homes that came on the market have sold in... 30 days or less, and that's that's a pretty astounding right. statistic. Well, compare that to, say, 2001, or excuse me, uh, 2011. Uh, okay, let me get my year straight here. Yeah, 2011, <laughs> that was still like three, four years after the, the recession. What was it like then? Because you've just described what it's like now, but what was it like then? I mean, I remember clearly sitting with sellers during that market time, and of course we look you know, locally at where they're located for, with their home to give them the sales statistics and anticipated time on market. And there were markets where we were telling people, your market time is 9 to 12 months. So those same markets today, we're meeting with sellers and saying, you might be looking at 60 days, but if you're presented properly, priced where you need to be, you could very realistically be a 30-day or less sale. And at this point, the irony is we're kind of telling our sellers, if you're on the market still at 30 days, people are starting to question whether there's something wrong with your home. Wow. And that's an unheard of. I mean, we've never seen that before. Bob, you, you're, you're, you're nodding your head in agreement. Well, <laughs> it's, it is funny what, how that uh, uh, has changed. I mean, you were asking those statistics, and fortunately, uh, I was given some good statistics to bring in here today. But if we went back to 2011, the average time in market in our marketplace was 111 days, mm-hmm. and our average time this year has been 68 days. So that's even higher than the right. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Well, that plays into the inventory issue, you know, because mm-hmm. everybody says there's a shortage of inventory. If the buy, if a seller is selling a home 30 to 60 days, Lancaster County, for example, but it takes us five months to build a new home. It Absolutely. takes us a month to 45 days just to get a building permit anymore. Uh, it's supposed to be a 15-day process, but some municipalities have found a way to stretch that out. So you're talking five to six months before a new home is ready. They're selling their house in 30 days. They're not mm-hmm. buying a new home that they have to have built. Mm-hmm. They're buying inventory homes. Well, it's a catch-22. You buy all the inventory homes on the marketplace, there's nothing available for that person to move into. So you know that's part of the problem. And then builders, on the flip side, don't want to take the risk of putting all the inventory homes up if they don't know they're going to be able to sell them. Because then you have the interest expense, you have the banks asking what's going on. So it's a catch-22. So you'll find that new home inventory is probably the lowest it's ever been historically. And that's because it's just, from a building perspective, we got stung so bad that we just don't have that much confidence out there. Now, is that different? Is that different than, you know, when the economy was good before? Oh, absolutely. I mean, before the before the bust, they had inventory homes. You probably had, what, nine months a year's worth of inventory on the marketplace. I bet you don't have, you probably don't have 60 days worth of inventory out there. Well, I'll tell you what, if you take a look at our statistic right now, we've sold 2,970 units so far. So we're on track for our best year ever. And we only have uh, 2,000 listings. So it tells you we're short. Bob, quickly, and I'll I'll ask you, Jennifer, the same thing. Uh, You hiring uh, agents? We're all looking for, for agents, and actually there's a lot of new agents coming on board. See, the reason I asked that question, I probably I kind of threw you with that question, but uh, it's not that I'm looking for a job. Uh, <laughs> we got one for you. <laughs> uh, again, I, in, in doing my research, I saw that that was a sign that things are going very, very well when agencies like yourselves are, you know, are hiring more people. Same thing with in, in Lancaster? Absolutely. Yeah. Everybody's you, looking for more people. The difficulty is finding skilled labor. And we're yes. going to talk about that in just a few minutes. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. 
Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about the real estate market here in central Pennsylvania, a healthy market it is, if you've listened to the first few minutes of our program. Joining us today, Jennifer King, president of the Lancaster County Association of Realtors, Bob Fox, the incoming president of the Greater Harrisburg Association of Realtors, Mark McNaughton is president of McNaughton Builders, and he's the government affairs liaison for the Pennsylvania Builders Association. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. We're going to be taking some phone calls in just a moment. But first, I'm also joined by, uh, from San Francisco, by the world way, uh, Cheryl Young is a senior economist with Trulia.com. And uh, Ms. Young, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Scott. Well, first of all, tell us a little bit about Trulia. Well, Trulia is a is a real estate website, and it's a place for you to find your next home. Well, you also have a lot of other information uh, other than just the listings. I, you know, when I, I just went to your website this morning and saw, you know, you have a lot of listings for here in uh, central Pennsylvania. So kind of give me the uh, the national view. Uh, you have heard uh, what's happening here in central Pennsylvania. What about nationally? Sure thing, Scott. Um, Yeah, so at Trulia, we really want to help our consumers have the most information they can in order to make a great decision about their next home, and a lot of that is insights on the housing market. So, you know, I've heard a lot about um, low inventory in the first half of your show, and that's absolutely the overwhelming sort of narrative in the housing market these days. I mean, some people are saying it's almost an inventory crisis. We're at chronically low levels of inventory. And what that means for consumers is headwinds in terms of high prices, a lot less supply in the market, same demand, maybe even a little bit more demand because mortgage rates are so low. So you have high prices and you also have a lot of competition. So we heard a metric about days on market. You know, we're seeing those drop considerably. So if you're interested in buying a home, you're facing a lot of competition with other people who want to do the exact same thing. So uh, across the country, obviously the economy has uh, has turned around and uh, there are a lot of Americans now that have confidence in, in buying a home. What turned it around? I mean, is there any one thing or is it just that the economy just, I mean, we know it was a slow recovery, but can you point to any one thing as to what turned this all around? I wouldn't say there were there was one thing in particular, but certainly you know the economy as a whole, job growth, uh, lower unemployment rates. That's that's really put more money in people's pockets for them to get back into the housing market. There was a tightening of credit as well, so it was much harder to get a loan because of these sort of leery um, lenders. So you know that's loosened up a little bit as well. So, you know, we've seen that those turnarounds um, from those sides. And, you know, we we didn't see a lot of decimation of, um, you know, home values in places like central Pennsylvania. But there are still markets that are struggling to get back that really sort of bottomed out. So we're still looking at those markets and and waiting for that turnaround to happen. Yeah, I, I think of California, Texas and Florida. Uh, maybe Las Vegas. What what are, are right. those some of the areas that uh, have struggled? Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly right, Scott. Mm. Right. Mm. So, how long does this last? I know we want to keep riding the high, but how long does it last across the country? In terms of housing prices, uh, prices, success, how well we're doing. Yeah, I think it's. It's really the crunch is going to continue, and I want to point to the segment that it's really going to hit the hardest, um, and that's really that sort of affordable housing segment. So what we're really seeing is that people on the lower end of the market are really bearing the brunt of the squeeze. So if you're looking to buy your first home, somebody mentioned millennials, if you're somebody who's just starting out, it's going to be really hard for you to enter that market just because prices are so high. And the, uh, the other segment that we're really looking at right now and who are feeling the squeeze are people that 
you know, maybe they have their first home and they're looking to buy their next one. Um, so that kind of trade up market, um, they're also really finding a, a hard price. It's definitely a seller's market out there and they can sell their home really quickly. But when they want to buy that next home, they're finding like very little inventory and much higher prices than they expected. You know, I and this is my, my final question, but uh, we mentioned millennials and you say it's a real challenge for those who are uh, looking to buy their first home because of higher prices. But another factor that that generation is looking at is the amount of debt they've taken on from going to college, student loans. Yeah, student loans. Student loans are some of the highest they've been in a long time. People are that really eats into the amount of money you could spend on a home. So that's certainly an issue for many, many people, young people these days looking to buy their home. So that's that's what they're looking. And demographically, you know, millennials are a little bit different than previous generations in that we've seen uh, truly as that you know they're getting married later. They're get, they're having kids later. So that decision to buy a home is coming a little bit later. So, you know, millennials, there's still a chunk of millennials that are still rather young. So we're hoping, you know, as this generation ages a little bit, they're going to start really cracking into the housing market. But they do face, you know, some of those headwinds that I mentioned in terms of prices and competition. Well, Cheryl Young, a senior economist with Trulia.com, thank you for getting up so early in San Francisco (laughs) this morning and talking to you. You really are, and you must have had a cup of of cup of coffee uh, this morning uh, before you went on with us. I actually haven't. (laughs) Ah, okay. All right, well, thank you very much for being with us today. Sure. All right, I want to take some phone calls here, and there's one that kind of relates to what what Cheryl was just telling us. Dennis is in Lancaster. Dennis, I understand that you're a mortgage banker. Yes, yes, sir, and I uh, appreciate that. I want to add the discussion a little bit. There's a lot of mention about millennials as the market, but just a couple facts here. uh, most of the housing wealth is in the helm, uh, in the hands of older people. I just recently passed over seven trillion for the United States, but it's growing tremendously rapidly. When you add people from that's over sixty-five, but and, and uh, of course the baby boomers uh, not only have most of the housing wealth, but you know retirement is like a trigger event. Ten thousand people a day, you know, retiring. You hear about these numbers. Pennsylvania is actually aging faster than any other right. state. So you have this trigger moment coming up. Most people, for over about eighty percent of people, the house is their largest single asset. And if they want to downsize, right size, or make a move, or buy a second home, or something, usually they're a cash buyer. Sometimes they take a thirty-year mortgage. There is a third option called reverse mortgage. It has thirty-year anniversary. Reagan created in nineteen eighty-seven. They can put down about half your money, and then you don't have a payment. Plus, housing is the largest single expense for aging. And even the governor says age at home, so you can take the asset from your house. But people can make a lot of moves. They haven't moved during the recession because their house is their biggest asset, and they need that money to sell it. But there should be a wave coming, and there is a wave coming of seniors making these moves, and they have these options. So, Hey, again, for, uh, I, Dennis, I, I, before, you, uh, before yeah. you go, I do have a quick question. What okay. about credit? I mean, our, our panelists here talked a little bit about credit. Is credit easing up at all? Well, for reverse mortgage, there didn't used to be any type of credit that's available. For a forward mortgage, that's another thing. Is people have sometimes trouble qualifying, so that's why they're mostly cash buyers. But for forward mortgages, you have to have the income and the credit and whatever. For reverse mortgages, it's a very low bar. There's actually no exact number that you have to have, but they want to make sure that you have enough money to pay your taxes and insurance. Mm-hmm. They didn't used to verify that, so they had more defaults. So they, it's a very minimum they have the third option, but I, I will say this because I have classes for the Pennsylvania Association of Elder Law Attorneys. I'm teaching classes for CEs for real estate agents, and their licenses are coming up this spring, by the way. So you can come to my classes, CE classes. But the third option should be prevented. You can pay cash. Presented. You can pay cash. You could uh, 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 have a mortgage, or you could put down about half and not have a payment. Yeah. And I would say. That's something, there should be more of that conversation, just that people should know about their options. All right, Dennis, thank you very much for your for your call. Um, you know, he touched on a lot there, but I wanted to ask you, uh, because Cheryl mentioned from Trulia about uh, credit. What about credit here in, in central Pennsylvania? I mean, we do know that it did tighten up after 2008. Uh, it, I don't know if it was difficult to get a loan. I assume it's much easier now, though, but how does it compare? I mean, is, is credit, is it easier to get today? 
I would say the people that should be able to qualify are able to qualify. Um, I would also add to that he mentioned, you know, about cash buyers. We are seeing just a ton of cash offers, whether people are pulling current equity out of their homes or actually have the cash. We've got buyers who've lost out in multiple offer situations on multiple homes to cash offers. So, you know, in the past, in a more stable market where there's five or six months of inventory, in Lancaster, we're down to two or less at the 300 and under price point. That's huge. And so you get these people who are going out and, you know, they get into a little bit of buyer fatigue. They keep making offers. In the past, they may have a house to sell, and they're going to make their offer contingent on sale and settlement. In today's market, it's just, it's not even worth writing the offer in many cases. All right, so we know that uh, the prices are up. What about uh, the upfront cost? Bob, what about that? I mean, how much do you need down? Uh, You know, closing cost, especially for first-time buyers, always an issue. Well, we have two plans out there that um, get a lot of use uh, uh, geographically. Uh, USDA, if you're homeless in the right, more of a rural area, uh, that's 100% financing. Uh, you can get into FHA, which is used, I would bet, probably 40% of the time, um, which requires a 3.5% down payment. Uh, would make a comment about the credit. Uh, um, I don't think the credit, other than for folks who have, who don't fit the norm, let's say you take like Jennifer and I who are real estate agents and other self-employed people, the ability to secure normal credit that way is a lot more difficult today than what it was 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we wanted to go buy a house for ourselves, it would be a lot more tenuous uh, mm-hmm. to do so. But I would say for the normal folks who are working every day, get a paycheck, I would say for the most part, those who can afford to buy their house and who pay their bills on time can find money. You guys aren't normal? You just said for normal? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. I'm only speaking for me. I'm not going to talk about <laughs> it. Right, okay. I'll just throw that out there. You, said you described yourself as not normal. So, uh, so Mark, I want to get back to the skilled labor part because this is something that goes over many different areas of our economy. but. In the construction industry, the home building industry, you are having an awful time finding workers, right? I, I think everyone is. It's a, we have a whole generation of people that we've instructed that they need to go to college, go to college, and get your hands mm-hmm. dirty is not a good thing. And uh, you know, I could assure you that in today's marketplace and moving forward, a skill, uh, trade, plumber, electrician, drywaller, uh, excavators, framers. If you, I mean, our, our, our aging population, I bet you the people who were now in those trades were 50 years old, 45, 50 years old or older, and they're going to be retiring, and there's no one to take their place because we have a, told an entire generation, go to college, go to college, go Absolutely. to college. Uh, I can tell you that if you're getting out of college and, you know, you have all this debt, if you learn a trade that could sustain you for the rest of your life, you'll be making six figures. Uh, There's many industries out there, skills that are necessary to be six-figure jobs. Has that delayed the building process at all, that uh, builders are having trouble finding workers? It it delays the building process. Uh, It also drives price. You know, it's it's an economics thing, economics 101. If you're a shortage of supply, price goes up. And that's exactly what's happening, not only from a material standpoint for lumber, for example, but for skilled labor, the prices continue to increase. That's why affordable housing is, is just a phrase. It's not an actuality in a marketplace, unfortunately, because of the cost of doing business. Hmm. See, you know, that's that's kind of a catch-22 as, as well. You had described it a little bit earlier that uh, uh, we have a situation where unemployment is down, um, but there are job openings. And, you know, and these are good paying jobs, family sustaining jobs, and uh, it's just, you need that kind of training. You need that that experience going in and learning what to do. Absolutely. It's It's a very big thrust of the Builders Association nationally, statewide and locally. Uh, that we are trying to help and assist anyone who can get into the job market to learn these trades. Go to trade schools, for example. Uh, we support them financially with the expertise from our industry all across the nation. We do that from the top down, NHB, PBA, our local HBA. Um, that's a very big thrust of ours. It doesn't help, though, that we can't have a, a person who's under the age of 18 and they're not permitted to use power tools because the federal government tells us they're not allowed to. So they're allowed to use a hammer and a shovel and a broom. 
Well, you need a saw to learn how to use a skill. Um, so you need to use a drill, which is a power tool, but you can't touch that tool until you're over 18 years of age. So there's a, you know, so you start, Votech, for example, you're starting those kids in there 15, 16 years old, but you can't give them on-the-job training until they're over 18. There's a, there's a disconnect with our rules and regulations from a government standpoint. Let's go to Laura in Cornwall. And Laura, I'm going to have you ask your question because I think it's a good example of what we're talking about, about starter homes. So, Laura, what is your question? My question is if a person owns a home that was built in the 1950s with only one bathroom, uh, does anyone want to buy it anymore? <laughs> Thank you very much for your call. But, you know, she brings up a good point, whether good it's point. one bathroom, whether it's a home that uh, does not have central air. Uh, you know, some of the things that uh, some of the older homes didn't include, will home buyers still buy those kind of houses? I would say they do. It's just, it's a function of price. Um, some people come in and um, remodel the home. And others are quite fine with a single bathroom. I could think of a lot of people that I grew up with. There were four kids, two adults. There was one bathroom, no powder room, and we all grew up, and many of us are still well, yeah, there. but, you know, we all did kind of grow up that way. But still, uh, when the, the, some of the first-time home buyers or the younger home buyers that are used to growing up with that bath and a half, two bathrooms, central air, uh, all of the amenities that are, are available today, uh, there still is a market for some of those older homes? Yes. Mm -hmm. that, but you say it's a, a question of price. They might have to be uh, it, priced it, a little it, bit it's lower. All, it's all, all going to relate to price and condition. Sure. Price, mm -hmm. location. Yep. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's all kinds of housing out in the marketplace available for that person. I mean, there's the older home, the nostalgia of the older home and the older architecture. Typically, they had hardwood floors in them. Uh, if you peel back the carpeting, you'd probably see a really nice hardwood floor underneath mm -hmm. that in that particular home. Uh, to refurbish that, you could make a fantastic new starter home out of that, uh, you know, depending upon, as Bob says, price and location obviously drives all those things. But there's other products in the marketplace for trying to meet the needs of those people who are out there. You have townhomes, you have uh, garden homes or patio homes, you have single family homes. There's a whole array of housing opportunities out there for uh, those people in the marketplace because we understand that not everyone can afford a $350,000 single family home. What about schools? I mean, we know there are certain issues that uh, influence where a person will buy. What about schools? How important is that? What are some of the other factors that help determine what they're going to buy or where they're going to buy? Well, in addition to schools, it'd be uh, location, opportunities for uh, access to highways, for example. Mm -hmm. Amenities, when I say amenities, not necessarily inside the community, but adjacent to the community. How close are they to shopping? How close are they to the grocery store? How close are they to their possible church or synagogue is, is another aspect of things. What is the tax rate in a municipality? I mean, there's some municipalities that have tremendous uh, taxes for real estate. Uh, when I say tremendous, I mean very low relative to the municipality that's next door or the one that may be 20 minutes away. Uh, so that's another factor that comes into play. All these things are taken into consideration by the people in the buying market. And then you would add to that interest rates, of course. You know, one of the things I find most interesting is uh, the, the trends that we have and how things have changed over the years. Um, you know, something that we have heard in recent years is that there are more young people who are deciding to live in the cities here in, in, in central Pennsylvania. Uh, I, one time I heard someone describe it, and you guys probably know this very, very well, that uh, they may live in the city, buy a home in the city, maybe rent in the, in the city, but then when they have kids, then they move out of the city and into the suburbs. Is that still the case? I mean, are you seeing these trends of, of younger people looking to buy in Lancaster, in Harrisburg, and, you know, we don't have anyone here from York or Lebanon, but uh, in our cities? We have buyers in the cities. Um, if you're looking at younger people, uh, we see a, a lot of interest growing with younger people moving into what I would call where the action's all at, let's say, in downtown Harrisburg. A lot of young people want to live in that corridor there. And pricing there has been good. There's been development there of various nature that has done well. Our struggle that we have right now is 
when we get out, particularly in the city, is the condition of the remainder of the housing stock and um, and and school district does play, play a, big, a factor in that. Big too. factor, yeah, yes. Yeah. How much does uh, perception weigh in this? I mean. Uh, there are a lot of people that I'm sure that uh, before they buy in an area or buy a home that they have uh, pictured, okay, well, I've heard this about that. I'm sure you're asked these questions all the time. I've heard th this that this you know is is a bad area, the, the schools aren't that good. or I've heard that uh, uh, you know the trash collection isn't consistent or you know I'm just using examples. But how much uh, does perception play into where a, a person decides to buy? I think perception can be more important than fact for a lot of people. Um, and I would tell you, the questions that you described there, I would say I heard more of those questions 20 years ago in this business than I do now. If you take the younger buyer, uh, they're going to know more about the house we're getting mm -hmm. ready to show them than what we know. They'll mm -hmm. say, well, is that is that color in the dining room? Is that a pink or, or just what that is? And we don't even know. It's our listing. Uh, so we don't. I don't hear that many questions on those things. So they are researching that. With all the statistics you can get online today about crime statistics, neighborhood, where appreciation has been on a lot of things, we don't get near those questions from that group of buyers. And your older buyers, when they're going out to buy, particularly if it's their second or third or fourth home, they know exactly what they want. They're not asking you many questions. They, they just want to see the right house. And once they see it, they want to write the check. You know, and we're going to wrap up this segment of the program, But and I want to thank the three of you for being with us today. But what does this mean for our economy overall? I mean, obviously, there has been a lot of improvement over the last nine or ten years. Uh, this is one of, and we've said it many times throughout the program, uh, uh, biggest investment most people will ever make. Uh, it employs a lot of people. Uh, and it, it says a whole lot about our company. Mark, what does it say about our economy, where we are right now? Well, as housing goes, so does the economy. Right. I mean, it, it, it stretches into so many different facets of the economy. You know, whether you make appliances or whether you're the guy who does the dry cleaning down the street. Uh, that's how strong and how expansive of a gamut housing is. And I think housing moving forward uh, with the pent-up demand that we have is, is a great positive outlook. I think it could have a tremendous impact moving forward over the next four, five, six, seven years. Uh, it's going to be a healthy, steady growth. It's going to be a struggle. Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, prices are going to be difficult to maintain and keep them down because it is going to be a struggle. And the way we're building houses today are not the way you build them 10 years ago or 15 or 20 years ago. So the new products and the new techniques and the recycling of materials that are used, today's houses are greener than before, are better than before. And you just have to get out there and look and find what you need. Mm. Mark McNaughton, Bob Fox, and Jennifer King, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Two recent federal court decisions could lead to costly delays or even stall some of the major pipeline projects planned to ship natural gas from the Marcellus Shale to new markets. State Impact Pennsylvania's Marie Cusick joins us to discuss these rulings. Marie, always great to have you on the program. Great to be here, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, so Marie, before we get into these court rulings, give us some background on uh, the pipeline building boom. Yeah, so this is really sort of part two of the natural gas boom. It's an effort to move this gas to market. Um, you know, if Pennsylvania were its own country now, it would be among the top gas producers in the world. So really billions of dollars worth of infrastructure projects are in the works to move this gas within the U.S. and abroad. Um, a lot of this gas is going to fuel new power plants and create electricity, electric power generation. So there's just a lot going on. Here in central Pennsylvania, we know there have been controversies, uh, groups of people who have people who have uh, formed groups to protest some of uh, the, the pipeline projects that are going through the area. So talk a little bit about those controversies. Yeah, there's really a lot of different controversies around some of these projects. On the one on the one hand, you do have an organized environmental movement that's challenging them on a lot of fronts, um, not only around the sort of localized environmental impacts these projects can create, but also sort of the bigger picture climate change aspect of using more natural gas 
grass. Um, but separately, you know, there's just a lot of grassroots opposition. P- these projects touch a lot of people's lives. They touch a lot of people's backyards. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are really feeling pushed around, particularly because uh, many of these projects get eminent domain. So even if you don't want it on your property, uh, it, it can still go there. Well, and that brings us back to uh, just something that happened last week uh, with the Atlantic Sunrise Project that went through many of the counties here in central Pennsylvania, but uh, uh, groups in Lebanon and Lancaster County were most outspoken about that. But uh, the last five properties that were needed for Atlantic Sunrise, that a judge made a ruling that uh, by eminent domain, those properties would be taken. Yeah, and that's what tends to happen when these projects are approved by the Federal Energy Energy Regulatory Commission, or FERC. Um, they get a certificate of public convenience and necessity, and that allows them to use eminent domain. Mm-hmm. And no one likes eminent domain, do they? No, I mean, it really doesn't matter what the project is. Right. It's uh, people definitely feel pushed around. So these two court rulings, let's talk about the court rulings. We'll start with the legal battle over the constitutional pipeline. Uh, now, this was originally planned to run 121 miles. It was carrying natural gas from northeastern Pennsylvania through New York State. But a federal appeals court ruled against that pipeline in a lawsuit it had filed against New York about a week ago. Tell us about the case. Yeah, well, what's interesting about this pipeline, the Constitution pipeline, is here you have a federally approved project by FERC, like I just mentioned. I mean, you have a state effectively blocking the project. So what New York did was it denied uh, what are known as the 401 certification, which is a water quality certification. The pipeline needed federal approval, but it also needed this from New York State. And they denied it, and they said, you know, the pipeline just hadn't addressed significant water impacts the project would create, nor had it given enough information to New York State environmental regulators. Um, so, but then the, the the Constitution pipeline sued New York State, um, and you know basically said you shouldn't, you can't be doing this to us. And the federal court ruled in favor of the state, saying yes, you can. They acted within their authority to deny these permits. Um, and you know, I talked to some different people about what this means. Again, you have a state blocking a federally approved yeah, interstate that's significant. project. That is sick. When you told me about this last week, uh, you know, I, I, there are very few cases I can remember where a state was able to block a ruling by a federal agency. Yeah, well, so one former um, FERC guy I talked to, his name's Mark Robinson. He's now a gas industry consultant, um, but he previously led FERC's Office of Energy Projects, which oversees pipelines. He told me this is a really big deal because he said he saw this, um, you know, back in the 80s and 90s with different uh, kinds of projects like hydroelectric projects where you have a multi-state energy project and you have one state saying, no, this is going to impact our water so they can they can block it. So he says if this starts to happen with gas pipelines, he felt like this was a really big deal, kind of bad news for the gas industry. On the other hand, I've talked to other folks who said, hey, this is New York. It's being New York being New York because um, for those who may not recall, New York banned fracking within right. its borders a few years ago. Um, so New York has been pretty unfriendly to the natural gas industry. Of course, they continue to use the gas that flows out of Pennsylvania, but um, other folks were like, they just really don't see this happening elsewhere. This is just New York. Give me a sense, though, of this this constitutional pipeline. I have to admit that I was not familiar with this one, and it does. Where in Pennsylvania does it go? Well, it it hasn't been built yet because planned to go. I should say it would emanate out of northeastern Pennsylvania and and run uh, northward uh, 121 miles through New York. And what happened is it created quite a bit of controversy in northeastern Pennsylvania about a year ago. Uh, because it did have that federal approval, um, some you know some folks from the company came and were cutting down trees on people's private land, and there was this actually a maple syrup farm where they were really upset. They said you're you're destroying our business because you're cutting down our trees, and they had armed you know federal marshals with them. And here it's it's sort of a you know people are pretty angry because de- I mean depending on what happens, this this thing might not get built now. It's, I mean I, I mean it could go that far. I, yeah, I mean, it, the company basically told me or signaled that they were going to try to bring this whole issue back before FERC. But, you know, FERC is not a court. Uh, it's quasi-judicial, but FERC already gave its approval. So if this federal court is siding with New York and saying, no, you know, New York acted within its authority, um, I don't know how many options they have here. So, again, uh, what's interesting is, though, that generally once these projects get that FERC certificate and get that federal approval, they assume they can move forward. And again, here you have a state blocking it. 
And just to kind of follow up on that, uh, what you described just a few minutes ago, when the the companies assume they they have that approval, that's why they start cutting down trees even before everything had been approved. Well, they're granted that eminent domain authority, mm-hmm. so they can do that. But here, you know, it wasn't. I don't think it was an expectation that it would go this far, and New York would not issue the 401 certification. All right, so another case. Last Tuesday, uh, a ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, uh, it criticized federal pipeline regulators for failing to properly quantify the greenhouse gas emissions from another pipeline. What happened there? Yeah, so this was a case the Sierra Club brought against FERC, and and part of it, it really centered on uh, what's called the Southeast Market Pipelines Projects, and the cornerstone of that is a 500-mile pipeline called the Sable Trail Pipeline, which runs through Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. Um, So this was really a win for environmentalists who are arguing that federal regulators aren't properly taking climate concerns into account, so specifically the greenhouse gas emissions that can result um, as an effect of a pipeline. Um, And what's interesting here, you know, the the saying, you know, the saying, oh, it's not the destination, it's the journey. Well, here, right in the ruling, the, the judge wrote that, well, actually, it is not just the journey, it's the destination. So if the pipeline is a pathway to a power plant that is going to be burning the natural gas and combusting it and creating greenhouse gas emissions, you have to think about that destination. So it was really telling FERC, you have to go look at the downstream impacts of these pipelines. You can't just pretend it's sort of a road to nowhere. The gas flows through it and it gets burned and that creates CO2 emissions. Um, So, and really under the Obama administration for several years, the EPA had been prodding FERC and asking FERC to really do a better job of analyzing greenhouse gas emissions from pipelines. So, you know, I guess the question is, what does this really mean for other projects? Um, Because this one was in the southeastern U.S. It's it's not really in our, it's not in our region. Um, It, you know, it's, it's questionable what it could mean. I think it, it, some of the folks I talked to said it could add delays because if FERC had done um, similar environmental reviews for other projects, um, it may now go back and try to redo some of those environmental assessments. You said uh, some of the greenhouse gas uh, impacts of, of pipelines. Uh, are there others other than you know the final destination and the plants burning natural gas? Yeah, absolutely. And this particular ruling was talking about the downstream impacts when it gets burned in a power plant. But of course, Mm -hmm. there are upstream impacts when the gas is extracted, whether it's drilling, you know, fracking. I mean, pipelines can leak. It can leak out of the pipeline itself. But most of, um, you know, most of what this ruling was talking about was really the downstream impacts of burning it in a power plant. And FERC argued back, FERC's argument was really, hey, well, these gas power plants will be displacing coal-fired power right. plants, which, which are not, right. dirtier. Right. Um, but the court said, hey, that's not really enough. You, you still, you can't just assume that. You can't, you, you need to either quantify this better or have told us why you couldn't quantify it. Will this make a difference in whether pipelines will be approved? A few weeks ago, you worked on a story about uh, FERC only not approving two projects over the years. Yeah, well, um, what this hinges on is uh, a law called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act, which is a nearly 50-year-old law, and it requires federal agencies in general to just assess the environmental impacts of the proposed actions um, that they're making decisions about. And, you know, again, that um, Mark Robinson, who I spoke to, as I mentioned, a gas industry consultant who used to head FERC's Office of Energy Projects, he, he said, you know, NEPA, this law, is just a procedural statute. In other words, yes, you have to assess the environmental impacts, but it doesn't really dictate the ultimate decision. And so he told me, you know, he, he said, I'm sure there are a few lawyers down at FERC right now working on this and trying to come up with some sort of boilerplate language on CO2 emissions that they can just stick into all these environmental impact statements. And uh, so he, he thought this would just sort of be a bump in the road and it could delay projects, but he didn't think it would have any ultimate effect on the decisions of the commission. A couple questions here. Does this give uh, hope to the environmentalists, the people who want to stop these projects or at least change them? 
I think they do really feel vindicated. I talked to the Sierra Club attorney who argued the case, and she said, look, FERC has been rubber stamping these projects for years and not looking at these impacts. If you know how many cubic feet a day are going through a pipeline, you know where you know you know that gas is going to be burned at some point. There's no reason why you can't do an analysis. So I, I think they do feel like it certainly was a win. It certainly was them, you know, the court saying, yes, this matters. Uh, climate change matters. Greenhouse gas emissions matter. You need to do a better job, FERC. But will that ultimately stop a project if that's some, some people's goals here? Uh, I don't I don't think so at this point. All right. So on the other hand, then, um, you know, for those uh, hearing the description, hearing about the court rulings are saying, you know what? You know, the demand is there. It's much cleaner than coal. All these delays and maybe going back to court and, you know, looking at the environmental impact, it's going to add cost, going to add money. It's going to delay. It's going to add uh, more money to the cost of natural gas, which eventually is passed on to the customer. I mean, do you hear anything along those lines? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, um, certainly I think the gas industry feels under siege from some of the, not only from some of these environmental groups that are uh, going after these projects, but just grassroots opposition. Um, but I think I think what's, what you have to think about here, too, is that, yes, gas is displacing coal, but at least here in our own backyard, it's it's also um, undercutting nuclear power, which is uh, cleaner, carbon-free power. So you can't just necessarily assume a gas plant going up displaces a coal plant and that it's a net gain for the climate. Marie Cusick is a WITF State Impact Pennsylvania reporter. Marie, thank you very much. You're welcome. State Impact Pennsylvania is a collaboration between WITF and WHYY in Philadelphia to cover the Commonwealth's energy economy. To learn more, visit WITF.org and click on State Impact Pennsylvania. And we know what everyone is talking about today, uh, the flooding going on in southeastern Texas with hurricane, now tropical storm, I don't know, is it tropical depression, Uh, hard We're going to talk about flooding on uh, tomorrow's program, uh, not just the national picture, but uh, here locally as well. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org.